Welcome to the weekly message from Upper Room Community Church in Vaughan. We hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and provide practical ways to strengthen your relationships. For more information, visit us at upperroom.ca. And I'll be reading the scripture today. The passage comes from Luke 19, 28 to 46. Jesus comes to Jerusalem as king. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? Say, The Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? They replied, The Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the name of the king who come sorry, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As they approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of Jesus' coming to you. When Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. This is God's word. Good morning again. Um, <clears throat> I know uh, it's, it's uh, uh, common wisdom to not start off a sermon with a sports analogy or a sports story, but I'm going to do it. Why? Because... Guys, the Leafs clinched a playoff spot last night. Wow, there's a lot more cheers than I thought there would be. Wow, this is the first time the Leafs have made the playoffs in four years. It's only the second time in 13 years, guys. But they finally clinched it. They squeaked in. They got the last spot. And here's the thing that I think makes that so uh, exciting for many of us who <clears throat> are, are Leafs fans or closet Leafs fans or whatever you might be. But nobody saw this coming right? Nobody expected this. If you've been following the Leafs at all, you know that they are in this massive rebuild, right? This is the Shanna plan. Brendan Shanahan is the new uh, or the, the recent kind of um, uh, president of the organization. And so their whole plan has been to kind of rebuild the team from scratch to trade off all their good experienced veterans and bring in a whole bunch of these new young guys. And hopefully within the next few years, they'd be a competitive team. Well, actually now they've made the playoffs and they're, they're, they're two or three years ahead of schedule. And so there's a lot of buzz going on in the sports world in Toronto because Toronto or the Leafs have like exceeded expectations. And I was thinking about this because it's funny, like they, they barely squeaked in, right? Like they got the last playoff spot that was available for them and, and all of Toronto fans are going wild with it. I was thinking if this was like Pittsburgh or if this was Washington or if this was Chicago, uh, it, these are all teams that have been making playoffs for years and they don't just make the playoffs. These are teams that for years and years now have been going deep into the playoffs. But if this was, if this was any one of those teams that had just done what the Leafs just did, uh, the fans in those cities would not be very excited. They'd actually probably be pretty disappointed 
there'd probably actually be a lot of buzz going on in the city that's saying, what's going on with our team? They just barely made the playoffs? Why would the response be so different? Because expectations matter. Expectations matter. See, if what you expect doesn't match up with what you experience, it's going to lead to either great delight or great disillusionment. If what you expect doesn't match up with what you actually experience, it can lead to either great delight or great disillusionment. And here's what I mean by that, right? Like, no one was expecting the Leafs to make the playoffs, but they did. Our experience is very different. They actually did, and so it leads to great delight for many of us, some of us, a few of us. Um, but this happens in all sorts of other ways, too, and it doesn't just happen in positive ways, but it can happen in negative ways as well. If what we're expecting doesn't line up with what we actually, if our experience doesn't meet, meet up with our expectations, it can actually lead to great disappointment, confusion, frustration, resentment. I don't know what to do. This can happen in our marriages. I know that like over the last couple years, I've begun to like in pre-marriage prep counseling that I do with couples, I've actually started, I didn't used to do this, but I've just begun to realize how like big a role expectations play in our marriage relationships, in any of our significant relationships. And so many of us have expectations of people who are close to us that are unconscious, unspoken, often unrealistic, and unagreed upon. And so if we go through extended periods of time in our significant relationships with unmet expectations that aren't being dealt with in some way, it can lead to all sorts of frustration, resentment, build up. We can feel stuck in our relationships. We have expectations in our careers, right? Some of you are in a stage of life where you are choosing the career path that hopefully will be like the path that you are set on for life. And you have certain expectations of what that's going to mean for you and for your life. Maybe you've just taken a new job or maybe you're looking for a new job because you have some different expectations of what might come as a result of that. Some of you are at a stage of retirement. Maybe that's in the distant future, maybe not so distant future. We have all expectations of what that stage of life is going to look like. For some of us, our vacation, for some of us, the expectations of our next vacation start the day after our last vacation was over. We all have expectations of what that next vacation is going to do for us or be for us or how it's going to fit into the kind of the grand plan of our life. But here's the thing. When our experiences don't match up with our expectations, it can often in our life lead to disappointment, to disillusionment, to questioning, even if some of the decisions that I made based on those expectations, were they worth it at all? Were they worth it at all? Um, or we can just become like my grandfather used to do, and he always used to say, well, I just don't expect anything's going to go well, and at least that way I'm never disappointed. <laughs> so here's where it can get even trickier, I think, in our lives, is that when our expectations start to butt heads with our, ex when our expectations start to butt heads with our experience of God, because for many of us in this room, right, we, many of us in this room believe in God. We've made this life decision to actually trust God in our lives. And we know that when we start to go down that path, that actually shapes some of the very foundations of our lives. Some of the biggest life decisions we make, if you're a follower of Jesus, actually come out of that conviction, of that trust, of that belief in God. And when our experiences in life begin to butt heads or begin to like become dissonant with our expectations of who God is, of how he works in the world or how he's supposed to work, 
just tell me if I should use that mic. I'll keep going on, but you tell me if I need to. Okay. Um, when, they, when they start to butt heads with our expectations of who God is or how he's supposed to work in our lives. And so this can lead to experiences or seasons in our life where we can become even more disillusioned, even more disappointed. Because um, we all operate out of a certain, at least for those of us who would say, yeah, like I'm a follower of Jesus, right? Or I believe in God. Like we, we, we all operate out of a certain set of expectations, like basic assumptions or expectations of who God is, right? Most of us in this room would say that God is good, that we believe that he's loving, that he's merciful, that he's powerful, right? We would say that he's sovereign, that he's in control of everything, that he's just, that he's wise. Like these are just like simple expectations that we would all have of God. But there are times that come into every single one of our life when just life becomes difficult and complex. And the paradigms that we have for God, for who he is, for how he's supposed to work in the world and in my life, they don't fit anymore with what's actually going on. Um, And so we find ourselves saying things like, I didn't think that this kind of thing was supposed to happen to people who follow Jesus. Or, I didn't expect that God would lead me to make that decision if it was going to lead to this. Or, I didn't expect that God was going to give this desire or this ambition to me that I have had so strong, maybe even since I was a little child, if he was never planning to fulfill it. That's not what I was expecting. And I think there may even be some of you in this room who, like, this whole, just the whole issue of faith, period, faith in any kind of God or supreme being has just always been a struggle because you just, you've struggled to reconcile this difference that you have seen between the idea of a good and powerful and loving and just God and your own experience of either pain and suffering and difficulty in your own life or in the world around you. I mean, we we are all aware of all the things that have been going on around the world in the last few weeks. How do we reconcile our expectations of a God who we believe and who we expect to be all these things with all that is going on in the world right now? How do we do that? This is not what I was expecting. And if you remember several months ago in the fall when we were going through this series that we were calling Under the Influence, we spent a week on this, right? This is what uh, some people call the wall or the dark night of the soul when we go through these seasons where what we are experiencing in our life can no longer fit. It just butt heads. It doesn't fit into the paradigms, into the ideas, into the expectations of who we think God is meant to be, either for us or for the world. And often in those seasons, it feels like God has actually pulled himself way back, has become very distant to us, and we don't know how to move through um, those those seasons in life. And I think I'm just coming to realize, friends, that this is actually far more a norm for most of us in our experience, in in the way that we relate to God, in our relationship with God, than it is an exception. I think many of us can at times sort of just stuff those, those feelings of tension or dissonance down in the way that we relate to God. But if we're honest, I think we all have the, this sense of kind of dissonance in different areas of our life, some in very strong ways and significant ways, others maybe in a lot more subtle ways. But I think what's really cool about today, about this today being Palm Sunday, is that this day, the event that we're celebrating, was an event that was all about expectations. 
It was all about expectations. It's Palm Sunday, and so we've mentioned this already, right? That this is the Sunday where we are celebrating Jesus coming into Jerusalem, riding on a donkey. He's surrounded by crowds of people who are waving palm branches in the air. They're taking their cloaks. They're throwing them down on the ground for him to walk over. They're shouting these things out, all these praises and acclamations about Jesus. But really, the reason that all of this was going on is because this is a story that's full of expectations. And really, it was, it was centuries worth of expectations that were coming to a head all in this moment. And so let me just give you a, a, a quick bit of background to help us understand the significance of the, of the expectations. And so a, a, about a thousand years before this, um, King David was ruling over Israel. And under his leadership, he had kind of fully established the nation of Israel in the land that God had given them. And so he had kind of set Jerusalem up as capital. And he was kind of known as um, like the greatest king that Israel had ever had. He was known as the king whose heart was after God's own heart. He, uh, he, he was known as the king who led the people of Israel to truly and fully follow and trust God. And he was the king who, above any other king, had the reputation for being the one who had brought victory in its fullness to all of Israel and who had brought peace to all of its borders. And so that was, had been a thousand years uh, before Jesus Live, But even shortly after, it didn't take long after David died for, for that to begin to unravel quite, quite quickly. The peace that David had secured began to unravel the nation very uh, quickly and steadily, but it was like slowly but steadily began to degrade. Um, they moved away from following God and began to worship other gods. Civil war pretty quickly broke out after David had died and the kingdom eventually split into a north and a southern nation. And eventually they were attacked by several different nations. They were conquered. Many of the people were taken and displaced, exiled. They were refugees in other parts of the world. And then they were submitted. The nation of Israel was submitted for centuries after by several different nations, one after another, of like by these oppressive regimes who were using these people, who were exploiting these people, who were kind of uh, ruling over these people. But throughout all of this process, God was sending prophets. He was sending messengers to give uh, uh, God's word, God's voice. God. One of the things that came through over and over and over again was this promise of a new king, of a new king who would be like David. And the name or the title that they gave him was Messiah. Messiah meant chosen one or anointed one. This is often when a new king would come to the throne, they would anoint him with oil, right? And so this would be the chosen one that would come and be like David. And he, he would have a heart, just like David's heart, a heart that was after God's own heart. And he would be one who would lead the people back to God to follow him wholeheartedly and to trust him fully. And he would be one who, just like David, would bring victory over all of their enemies and lead them into a time of peace, of freedom and peace. So these were all the expectations that were loaded and building up to the day of the triumphal entry. And so here, a thousand years later, Jesus comes onto the scene and he begins his ministry. And so he starts showing up with these acts of power, right? He begins to do miracles. He's healing people. He's turning water into wine. He's casting out demons. They're shrieking as they're coming out of people. He's raising people from the dead. He's walking on water. He's doing all this crazy stuff, right? And not only that, but he's, as he's going and doing all this stuff, he's, he's, he's preaching and he's teaching to crowds. And he's not saying the same old kind of religious stuff that all the other religious teachers or the religious people are saying. 
No, he's, he's saying some new stuff. It's like when he talks, he's making sense out of life. Um, and when he talks, like people are saying, how does this guy speak with so much authority? Like what he says just makes sense. It feels like it's coming straight from God. And so if you were a Jewish person in this day and you had spent any time or you had heard anything of significance about what Jesus was doing, if you had spent any time around him, you would not be able to help but have some of your hopes, some of your expectations tweaked for who this guy really was. Is this the promised Messiah? Is this the chosen one? Is this the guy who's going to potentially free us from Rome, who at the time was the, the nation who was ruling over Israel in an oppressive way? Is this the guy that's going to free us from Rome? And now, in this story that Serena just read for us, this is a story where Jesus really starts to push the point on our expectations of him. It's the week before the Passover festival. VJ kind of unpacked that a, a little bit last week for us. And so this was the biggest, most important festival or holiday in the Jewish calendar. Um, Jerusalem would have swelled at this point. One source that I read said it was normally a town with a population of about 30,000. Oh, during Passover, all these people from all over the nation came. It swelled to about 180,000, like six times as big. So this was a huge amount of people gathering all in Jerusalem. And this is when Jesus decides to make his move. And so what does he do? I think it's so fascinating, and I think one of the things I really want to drive home is this idea that what he did in this whole triumphal entry when he came in riding on the donkey and all these crowds surrounded him, this isn't something that just spontaneously happened. It wasn't as though he just decided to show up one day on a donkey and all the crowds were like, oh, there's Jesus, hey, let's go and cheer. No, it wasn't like that. It was actually quite the opposite. Jesus actually planned and orchestrated out this whole event in a way that was going to push and provoke and lean into every one of those expectations that the people had had for centuries about this coming king, this coming Messiah. And so we know that in the account. It's very obvious that he had kind of prearranged the donkey to be picked up and to be used by him to be coming in. That's obvious in the account. But he also, which I think is fascinating, he prearranged the crowd. Um, the crowd didn't actually come from Jerusalem. The crowd, it says in the account, it came from these two uh, surrounding towns or villages that were just outside of Jerusalem, Bethany and Bethphage, and they were right beside each other. And they, they were actually a couple towns where Jesus probably spent a bunch of time during his own ministry in there. He had some good friends that lived in the town of Bethany. You might uh, be, recognize their names, Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus. And so he had gotten to know them very well, but he had probably done a bunch of miracles there as well and we know that it probably wasn't that long before when he had actually raised Lazarus from the dead and so these were two small towns that were outside of Jerusalem but man think about how news travels in a small town right there would have been buzz in the town about this guy man that's the guy that just raised someone from the dead can you believe that could he be the one could he be the king there was a crowd around that was like like buzzing about all the stuff that Jesus was doing. And so here's what the account says in Luke chapter 19. It says, when he came near the place where the road goes down uh, the Mount of Olives, both of these towns were on the Mount of Olives. They were part of the road that led to Jerusalem. The whole crowd of disciples, right? It wasn't just random people. It was all these followers, this growing gathering of followers that Jesus had gathered. They began to joyfully praise God in loud voices. Why? For all the miracles that he had seen, right? Jesus was bringing all this stuff up to a head. He was doing miracles there, right? To kind of rally the troops. And they're yelling out, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. 
peace in heaven and glory in the highest. You know, many times before this point, earlier on in Jesus' ministry, when he was doing miracles, he was actually telling people to keep quiet. He's like, don't tell people that this just happened. Don't tell people about who, he, who, who I am. But now it's like the coin flips. Things change. He's actually stirring the pot. He's trying to rally the crowd. He is pushing in on every expectation about this kingly Messiah. What are just some of the ways that he did this? Well, it's not in Luke's account. It's, it's in both Matthew and Mark's account. But it says, as Jesus was on his way up to Jerusalem outside of uh, Jericho, coming up from Jericho, there was a blind man who calls out to him. And the blind man says, son of David, have mercy on me. The, that term, son of David, would have been an unmistakable kingly term, right? This is the son or the descendant of David who would come to be the king like David. And, he, and Jesus responds by basically saying, yes. And then he has mercy on him and he heals him. And it says the crowds were like super excited that this was happening. And then Jesus carries on to Jerusalem, right? He is rallying up and, and, and uh, getting the crowds excited as he moves in to Jerusalem. And then, you know, it's been mentioned already, the way that Jesus comes into the city. He comes in on a donkey. And that would have been in fulfillment of one of the Old Testament prophets, Zechariah, who said, this is how you know you're going to be able to recognize the king, that David-like king who's going to come and bring freedom and peace in a whole new way. This is what Zechariah wrote. He said, see, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. He's going to pro proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea. And from, river, and from the river to the ends of the earth. This is the, the statement that was made about this coming king, that he was going to have rule over the entire earth. And how are we going to know who he is? He's going to come into the city riding on a donkey. So that's what Jesus does. And then he begins to respond and to actually receive all of these like praises and acclamations about who he is. And they're all kingly titles. Right? They're saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They're shouting out this word, Hosanna. It means save us. Only a king can save, right? In John, he says, his account says that everyone was yelling out, blessed is the king of Israel. These are, uh, these are like fighting words. These are not insignificant things. You wouldn't just say these things to any old person who comes out, but Jesus is actually receiving these things. And in fact, in a lot of ways, what was happening would have probably brought images of an event that had happened much uh, in much more recent history for them, only a couple years or a couple hundred years before this time. Uh, this was when um, a guy by the name of Judas Maccabeus, he was a... a, a an Israelite person who kind of led a revolt at the time they were being uh, ruled over and oppressed by a Syrian king and the temple had been filled with all these kind of Greek idols that had been dedicated to Zeus and so Maccabeus came in, he leads a revolt against this king, uh, he, he, he conquers him and then he, he strides into Jerusalem on a war horse to all of these people waving palm branches. Um, as he comes into the city to go in and sort of rededicate the temple to God. And so no doubt this would have been one more image that Jesus would have been playing up on, pushing in in terms of all of these expectations. So much so that the Pharisees, the, 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 the teachers, right, the religious teachers, they actually call out to Jesus and they're like, dude, do you see what's going on? You need, to, you need to like rebuke your disciples. You need to tell them to stop. And you know what he says? He says, I tell you, if they keep quiet, even the stones will cry out. Do you know what Jesus is saying here? He's like, guys, um, 
I am trying to make this as obvious as I can. Like, even the stones should be able to get this. Like, how dull are you, right? Like, I am the king. I'm the one that everyone is meant to be expecting. That's me. And it's so obvious that all creation should get this. That's what Jesus is saying. He's pushing the point. He's provoking. He's, he's trying to cause a stir in all of this. He is saying, I am the one that every single one of your expectations are actually pointing to. But then, he begins to do some things that nobody was expecting. And so instead of going to the, the palace to storm the palace and take over the throne with his angry mob of people, he stops and he weeps over the city of Jerusalem. He stops and he weeps over the city of Jerusalem. This is what he says. He says, Jerusalem, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. You think you know what will bring you peace, but you don't. But now it's hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Those, uh, those are not light words. Instead of going to the palace and, and storming the palace to take over the throne, instead of fighting for Jerusalem, Jesus stops, he weeps over the city, and he basically pronounces judgment over Jerusalem. This is not what the king is supposed to do. And then not only that, but instead of, like I said, going to the palace and turning it upside down, he turns, he moves toward the temple, and he turns the temple upside down. And he starts to call out all of the, the corrupt practices that are going on in the temple. All of these things that are keeping people from actually knowing and entering in and approaching God, right? He's saying, he's flipping over the, the change tables and all the money lenders and all the stuff that's going on, and he's saying, you guys, this house, this is my house, he says, for one. Um, but he says, you guys are, uh, this is meant to be a house of prayer. You guys are turning it into a den of robbers. This is not what this king is supposed to do. But what's Jesus saying here? I think it's so interesting. Because in a lot of ways, he's giving like kind of two mixed messages, right? He's saying, you guys need to understand I am the king, right? Like I am the one that everybody has been expecting. Everyone has been waiting for. I'm the one, but... I have not come to do the things that you have been expecting me to do. I'm the one you're expecting, but I haven't come to do the things that you're expecting me to do. It might be Rome that's on the throne right now, but Rome isn't the thing. Rome isn't the one that needs to be overthrown. Do you want to know who that is? It's you. Because there are practices and there are values that you are holding on to and that you are keeping as a people that are actually keeping you and keeping the rest of the world away from God. And you have turned the things that I have given you to connect with me and to lead others to me, and you have made them, you have turned them into a means for your own personal gain. And so I have come to clean house, but it's not Rome's house I've come to clean, it's yours. That's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, yeah, I'm the promised king. 
But you need to understand that there is something bigger than Rome that is causing oppression and enslavement in your life. There is something bigger than Rome that is, that is keeping you from ultimate freedom and peace. Here's what it is. It's your own sin and self-absorption. And that's what I've come to free you from. How do you like me now? That's what Jesus is saying. He's pushing the point. He could not be more controversial, more subversive, more like provoking when he does this. He came into the city to be crowned king. But when he got there, he did things that no one was expecting. No one was even wanting him to do. And friends, I think this is, this is true in our own lives in so many ways. See, we, we invite Jesus into our lives, and we, we call out in the same ways that the people in the crowds were calling out to Jesus, right? We say, Hosanna, Jesus, come and save me. Bring peace into my life, right? Make all my enemies go away. Do all of these things. We invite him in to be king, but then he begins to confront the things that are actually on the throne in our lives. And so he starts to deal with problems. Um, but they're not necessarily the problems that we believe need to be dealt with. And, and he starts to put his finger on things in our lives that need to be fixed, but they're not necessarily the things that we thought were even a problem in the first place. And he starts even to pick some fights, to fight some battles, but they're not the fights necessarily that we think even need to be picked. He does this thing in all of our lives, and I think it's often in those seasons, in those experiences, when Jesus is coming to actually confront the throne of our own lives, when we come into these seasons that we might call the wall. When our experiences in life don't match up with the expectations that we have put on Jesus. And this is where I'm just coming to learn. Like, and like I said, I think this is a norm for many of us most of the time. This experience of being in the wall. When what we are experiencing in life just doesn't fit, it doesn't, it, there's so much dissonance between that and who we think God is supposed to be for us. And so we don't know, and often it feels like God is very distant, that he's pulled himself back from our lives. We don't know where he is, we're calling out. Friends, I'm just learning in the last year or two of my own life, I'm learning in some new and fresh ways that actually it's in those seasons when it might actually be Jesus pushing in, not pulling back. Jesus provoking, pushing those buttons, like, like causing me to have to wrestle with this whole idea of the fact that he wants to be king. He wants to be king. He's the one who I'm expecting him to be, but he's going to do things that I'm not expecting him to do. And so when he begins to push those buttons, it's not really even a choice. There's, there's only two options. Well, I mean, it is a choice for sure, but there's only two options that we either need to crown him or kill him. We either need to crown him or kill him. That's exactly the, the response that he was provoking when he came into Jerusalem. There was no one who could have witnessed it that day or been present at that day and seen what Jesus was doing and just come away from the day saying, hey, that was cool. That was neat. That was special. No, like Jesus, he, he wasn't looking for that kind of response at all. And in fact, you couldn't have done that. There was only one of two responses. You either needed to say, this guy's going to be the new king, or he's got to be finished. And those were the two responses that actually came. We know that in the week. This was the day that everyone was yelling, crown him. A week later, everyone was yelling, kill him. The same response is actually, he's eliciting that from us as well. Because 
When Jesus comes into our lives, he comes in to be king. And I think it was Tim Keller who said this. He said, when there are two kings and only one throne, there's going to be a war. There's going to be a war. And the thing that Jesus is declaring war against is my own self. Not like, not myself, but my capital S, self. He's declaring war on the expectation, right? Mark often talks about this when he preaches here, this gravitational pull that we all have. It's the expectation that I'm going to be the ruler over my own life. That's what Jesus is declaring war against. If he's come in to be king, then the one who he's going to confront first and the one who he's going to confront over and over and over again is me. It's me. And I think there might even be some of you in this room who... who for a long time, the reason that you haven't decided to, f- to fully follow Jesus or to give him the throne of your own life is because you get this. You feel this tension at work, and you've maybe been sitting on the edge because you, you don't want to make that decision. But Jesus actually forces us all to either crown him or kill him. There's no middle ground. Because if you're going to call out to him, Hosanna, right? Save us. Then he's going to call out to you, you need to crown me king. And if we're going to receive him, if we're going to accept him as king, this is what he comes in to do. He comes in to clean house. That's what he did in Jerusalem. That's what he does in our own lives. Um, I read a commentary by N.T. Wright on this, and I think he worded this so uh, beautifully, so I wanted to just read it for you. Here's what he says. The people wanted a prophet, but this prophet would tell them that their city was under God's imminent judgment. They wanted a Messiah, but this one was going to be enthroned on a pagan cross. They wanted to be rescued from evil and oppression, but Jesus was going to rescue them from evil in its full depths. Not just the surface evil of Roman occupation and the exploitation by the rich. Precisely because Jesus says yes to their desires at the deepest level, he will have to say no or wait to the desires they are conscious of and expressed. That's the funny thing with prayer. Once you invite Jesus to help, he will do so more thoroughly than you imagined, more deeply than perhaps you wanted. If you invite an accountant to help you with your income tax return, you mustn't be surprised if she goes through all your other financial affairs as well to make sure she's got everything right. The story of Jesus' grand, though surprising, entry into Jerusalem then, it's an object lesson in the mismatch between our expectations and God's answer. The bad news is that the crowds are going to be disappointed. But the good news is that their disappointment, though cruel, is at the surface level. Deep down, Jesus' arrival at the great city is indeed the moment when salvation is dawning. The hosannas were actually justified, though not for the reasons that they had supposed. To learn this lesson is to take a large step toward wisdom and humility and towards genuine Christian faith. I love how he acknowledges that at the end of this quote, that like this is not an easy lesson to learn. But man, this, this is the Jesus who we worship. He's one who actually pushes and provokes and leans in and confronts over and over and over so that we will learn to allow him to be king. And that means we need to get ourselves off the throne. We need to get ourselves off the throne. I don't think this is an easy thing to do, but here's where I think, why I think, um, like, even in this story, there are reasons that we can see that say, like, why might we be compelled to do this? 
Why might we be compelled to get ourselves off the throne and to let Jesus be king? I think there's at least two reasons that are embedded in this story. The first is in how Jesus came, and the second is in what Jesus came to do. See, Matthew quotes that passage in Zechariah 9 in terms of how Jesus came, and he quoted Zechariah who said, See, your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, right? Jesus came in riding on a donkey. And you know, like, in that time a donkey stood for peace. And particularly if a king came riding on a donkey, that was a statement that the king was like a peaceful king, that this was a time of peace that uh, the king was ushering in. You see, a king would never go to war riding on a donkey, right? Like, he'd be a sitting duck, he'd get slaughtered. A king would go to war riding on a war horse, something big and strong and tall and agile. You'd never go to war riding on a donkey. No, that's not, because on a donkey, you're vulnerable. On a donkey, you're slow. On a donkey, you're weak, right? You're not showing or displaying your power on a donkey. This is how our king comes to us. He comes gentle. He comes vulnerable. He comes in peace. The king that we have, the king that wants our throne, the throne of our lives, he will never, he has the power, but he will never use his power to force or manipulate, or coerce, or push us off the throne. It has to be one that is given willingly. He won't take it from us. I think that's incredible. That says a lot about the king that we worship. But not just how he came in, what he came in to do. You see, Jesus came into the city to declare war, but the only life that he was willing to be taken was his own. It was his own. Because he, we, we know this, right? He came into the city to die. And he made that choice. That was his call. He willingly gave himself to death. He said, yeah, I'm gonna be, if I'm going to be your king, you're going to need to give me all of your life. But here's the thing. I'm going to give you all of mine as well. I'm not going to use you for my own ends, for my own power, for my own control, for my own prestige. No, I'm actually going to have, I'm going to use everything I have for you. That's the king that we have. That's the king that wants the throne of our lives. Why? Why can we say yes to this king? Because he's a gentle king, and he's a king that loved us so much that he was willing to go to the cross to give himself fully for us so that we could have real and true peace. So here's what I want to suggest, my friends, as we kind of wrap up this morning. Um, yeah, and I'll just invite the worship team to come up too um, as we kind of wrap up. Because I think there's probably a few of you in a few different uh, sort of uh, uh, places uh, here. I, I think there might be some of you. Well, okay, here's, here's where I'm going. It's Palm Sunday, right? Palm Sunday. So here's what I want to uh, throw out to you. A palms open prayer. Can everyone just sort of lift up your hands, show your palms? Yeah, great, okay. Palms open prayer. If you want, you can put your palms open like this. You don't have to, but if you want to, you can. Um, I, I think there are some of us that are, going on, or that are going through a situation or a season in our lives where we are holding our palms tightly, right? There is something that we are kind of keeping our, our fists clenched on, where we are kind of holding on to something very specific that we are calling out to God. This is what I'm expecting you to do. This is what I'm waiting for you to do. I think there are maybe others of us that have been, maybe even like, like I mentioned before, maybe you've been resisting Jesus for a long time. 
because you are afraid of some of the things that you are ex- that, that you are expecting he might do if you say yes to him, if you get off the throne of your life and you allow him to sit on. And then I think there are probably many of us in this room who can't necessarily think of any one specific thing, but maybe there are subtle ways or patterns that we have all developed in different ways where we just resist his kingship, where we say, no, I want things to be my way in this. In that relationship, in this conversation, in this ambition of my life, there are all sorts of little subtle ways that we kind of hold on tightly to the things that we want, to the expectations that we have about how our life is supposed to go. Well, <clears throat> here's what I want to propose to you, and I think it's kind of taking, um, 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 like following suit off of what like VJ was talking to us about last night in terms of repentance. It's repentance means like to change your mind, right? To think differently to change the way that our minds or our hearts are are wired. And so this is just a simple prayer that I want to kind of propose to you that can help us to repent, to kind of change the way we think when it comes to the expectations that we have of God. Here's what I'm saying. Instead of praying, Jesus, this is what I need you to do. And I'm not saying that we don't at times pray that legitimately, right? I'm not saying we don't bring our desires to Jesus and we bring them all fully. I think the the difference is when those desires turn into demands and when those demands are unmet, it can lead to disillusionment. And so I think that's one of the ways that we can find or figure out if we're kind of off track in this, but we can pray with our fists clenched, holding on to these expectations or demands saying, this is what I need you to do. Instead, what would it look like if we were more often to pray with our palms open and to say, Jesus, what is it that you want to do? What is it that you want to do? I want to just encourage you to pray a palm, like palms open prayers as we go through the next week leading up into Easter. What might Jesus the King be saying to you? What, bush, what buttons might he be pushing in on your life to say, ah, oh, no, I'm the one who's king. Let me be king. And here's what I think, friends. Um, I don't think, like, as we learn to do this more and more, I don't think we're given the promise that we won't have struggles or difficulties or battles to fight in life or challenges in this life. I don't think we are given that promise. But here's what I think we are given. Here's what I think does grow in our lives. Because what is one of the things that the king is meant to protect more than anything else? It's peace. The king protects peace. That's who Jesus is. He's the prince of peace. So man, as we learn to come to him as the king with our palms open and say, Jesus, what is it that you want to do? My prayer is that we would all experience and know this king who brings ultimate peace into our lives. Amen? Amen. just want to give you a brief word of blessing before we uh, move into our announcements and wrap up our service. And so, I mean, one of the things that's just really been striking me about this story over the last week or so, um, you know, is like, what is it that we need to see Um, in order to help us actually open up our palms to Jesus and to say, yeah, you're the one who can be king. I think it's it's actually embedded right in what Jesus prayed or, or said when he was weeping over Jerusalem. He said the thing that it was that was keeping them from actually from having the peace, the kind of deep peace that was deeper than even the kind of peace they were looking for is because they failed to see him. They failed to see God coming to them. They failed to see when God came to them. So man, I just, um, my blessing to you is that um, you will be able to see your king coming to you. Who it is that you're actually opening up your hands to. This one who comes to us gently. This one who comes to us to give himself completely for us. 
so that you can say yes to that king. That's the king who calls, who, who wants to take the throne of our lives. Would you receive that today? Amen.